There is a sense in which we finish singing those praises and contemplating the work of the Savior, and then we turn our attention to John chapter 8, which exposes the dreadful unbelief in the Jews of Christ's time who are privileged to see the Jesus that we just sang about in person, to witness his miracles, to hear his teaching, and to see this response of unbelief. Please join me in John chapter 8 as we continue our study this morning. I'd like to pick up again in verse 48, but our text of study will be verse 54 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray together. Father God, it is with great humility and great expectation that we come before you now and seek your pleasure in feeding us and nurturing us and giving us understanding and doing what only your spirit can do to our hearts and minds as we take in the living word of our God, as we understand more of your son, as we try to learn from his teaching and his words, and Father, even as we learn from the unbelief of these very devout religious men. I do ask, Father, that you give me the ability to speak clearly on the things that are before us But God, give us a reverence for what your son is teaching. Give us a reverence for your son himself. And give us a reverence for you and all that you have provided us in your son. As believers, we are so grateful for our redemption. But we know that that redemption started a salvation that continues to be worked in our lives, even our sanctification. And the day will come when we will stand finished and complete and glorified in your presence. And with joy, we look forward to that moment. But right now, we are in the midst of a broken world. And Father, we are under this progressive work of your Spirit. So we don't take this moment lightly or for granted, but rather we lay ourselves, submit ourselves before you into your hands, into your work, and the teaching of your word. Take us this morning where we need to go, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, to this point, we have broken the end of chapter 8 into kind of two parts under this understanding of a father's likeness. And that is taken from the discussion between Jesus, the debate that was between Jesus and the Jewish rulers that largely centered around Father Abraham, the Jewish father Abraham. And Jesus used that as an opportunity to highlight the spiritual fatherly likeness that true believers have in God himself. And that cannot be separated from the Son, God the Son. And this is the focus of our tension as we look at these words between Jesus and these Jews. Jesus portraying himself as the Son of God who was sent by the Father to speak the truth of the gospel message that these men desperately needed to hear. And yet here they are holding on to their lineage through Father Abraham. We're going to see Abraham again enter into our discussion this morning. Our second part of this study of the end of chapter 8 is really a lesson on faith's spiritual life giver, Christ himself. And as I said before, I want to repeat again this morning, that life-giving declaration in verse 51 really rests upon the Christological or theological emphasis of what Jesus declares in verse 58. And what that earned for Jesus was the desire to kill in the Jewish people, to stone him. And we see that in verse 59. That is a very different demeanor than you and I hold today as we contemplate Jesus, our Savior. But we want to look at three parts this morning. We've already considered the one who glorifies the Father. And we're going to talk about the glory of God or Christ himself again this morning. We've considered last week the one who rescues from death, focusing on what Jesus declared in verse 51. That if we keep, we take hold of. We have faith in the word of Christ, we shall never see death. And it is amazing to me again that those gracious words fell from the lips of Christ in the midst of a debate of hostility and unbelief. And yet Jesus pauses there to extend an invitation to these unbelievers. We're going to turn our attention this morning to verse 54 through the end of the chapter and what is clearly an emphasis on the eternality of Jesus Christ, that he is eternally present. And I have to say to you, this is one of the most difficult thoughts for me as a limited human being. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the endlessness of space. We, we have powerful telescopes that will reach far, far out into space. But have you ever thought, where does space stop? Where does it end? Does it end? And if it does end, is it like a sheet of glass or is a wall? Where does it end? And if it ends, what, what's thereafter? These are the kind of things that I, my little brain will struggle with. And now you're going to struggle with them too because I planted that seed. Where does space end? And if we put this into a theological perspective, one of the most difficult things for me to consider is the endlessness of God, the timelessness of God. He has, Christ has, no beginning and end of days. Does that not frustrate your brain? I mean, people contemplate whether or not Adam and Eve had a navel. But think about Christ, his endlessness. He has no beginning of days or end of days. And we can only struggle with that because we are bound 
as created beings by a limited number of days. And yet in Christ, we enter into the eternal. So it is so important what Jesus declares here in verse 58 and the verses preceding it. So we're going to take a few moments to look at two brief points, spend a little bit more time on the third point, and then I want to take a little bit more time on an application in our conclusion. So we begin this morning by looking at the Son of God who is glorified by the Father. Verse 54, Jesus addresses these unbelievers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Jesus had already made the declaration in previous verses that he didn't seek his own glory. Instead, he entrusts his honor and his reputation into the hands of his very capable heavenly father. These men judged him wrongly. They dishonored him, Jesus said. But there is one, my father, who seeks my glory and he judges correctly. He understands me righteously. And he will glorify me. Jesus now turns that direction of glory the other way. And he declares to these men, I glorify my Father. I'm not glorifying myself. Because if I stood by myself, glorifying myself, praising myself, my glory would be nothing. Most men, especially these Jewish leaders, would have loved to promote, and they did, promote their own glory, their self-importance. And if they had the credentials that Jesus did, say, doing miracles and preaching with the kind of wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures that Jesus had, these men would have glorified themselves all the more. But Jesus makes a clarification here about one's glory that these men would not have understood in Jesus if he were to simply promote his own glory without the approval of God the Father, his glory would mean nothing. Now this should have struck a nerve with these men because that's exactly what they were doing. They were glorying in themselves apart from the glory of the Father. What Jesus is saying is that anyone including himself, who would glorify self independent from God as an empty, baseless glory, and that glory would be nothing. Because the only judgment of value, Jesus said, is from God alone. To stand apart from his glory would be a worthless glory. So Jesus is not saying here that he is without glory, that he has no glory, What Jesus is again telling these Jews is that he and the Father are one. And notice he says, my Father. It's personal. Verse 54. Jesus did not need to come to our world to promote his own glory because he knew his Father would see to it that he would be glorified. He came to our world to be humbled, to be shamed by men, But as the Savior sent by God to redeem God's people, he would be glorified by God in his calling. His perfect union with God the Father assured him that he would be glorified according to the God who judges all things righteously. We spoke last week that following the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father. 
And Paul in Philippians chapter 2 made clear to us that God himself has highly exalted his son. And he gave to his son a name that is above every other name. And he assured us that the day will come when every knee will bow before that one, the Son of God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what's the rest of it? To the glory of God the Father. Does that not express the union of Father and Son? God will glorify His Son. And in doing so, He will be glorified. It is expressing this union between Father and Son where God is glorified. He puts His Son on display. And His Son is glorified. But God is glorified as well. And this is what Jesus is communicating to these Jews who would not believe. This teaches once again the unity of Father and Son within the triune Godhead. That the Son is exalted. And so also is the Father. And therefore, Jesus did not need to come to this earth seeking his own glory independent of God. He came knowing he would be shamed, knowing he'd be humiliated in his death on the cross. But this act of redemption, that sacrifice that he made for God's people, would exalt the glory of God. It would put on display the attributes of God's love and his grace and his mercy and his redeeming plan and care for his people. He came to exalt the Father. He came to glorify the Father, even in his own humiliation. Jesus uses the assurance of his union with the Father to show the Jews that he refers to the one that they say is their God. And it's not common for Jews to refer to God as Father. But notice that is one of the most common expressions for Jesus to use of God, that that he is his Father. And again, this is the union between the Father and the Son within the Godhead. At the same time, Jesus uses his unity with the Father to show again that the one these Jews claimed was their God was not. And this brings us into the second declaration Jesus makes to these unbelievers in verse 55. The Son knows the Father, but these religious men did not. Not only were they under the fatherly influence of the devil because they held to the deception that denied Jesus his true sonship to the Father, in addition, these Jews did not even know God. And this would have been a stunning accusation for these religious leaders to hear. Imagine these words being spoken today to any number of very devout religious people that we may know especially to those who hold perhaps leadership positions in their religion. I think we've been all in positions of need um, where we're praying for that need. We're praying for an individual in need. I was talking with Debbie just this morning about this. But many of us have been in the, the position of praying for someone we know in need. And there are other religions or other people of acquaintance that are connected with other religions, and they say, well, we're going to be praying as well for that need. And the suggestion is we're joining together different faiths and praying to God. Do we understand what Jesus is declaring to these religious men, these Jewish leaders, when he says to them, you do not know God? We can pray for needs. 
But those other religions that claim they're joining with this, God is not listening to them because he is not their God. And he's not their God because they have rejected his son. They've dishonored his son. They would not embrace the truth that the son was commissioned to come and proclaim. That is a hard message for us to communicate to our religious neighbors and family and friends, isn't it? In verse 54, Jesus told them that the one he called his father, they say, is their God. And he follows this by telling them outright, you don't know God, but he does. And Jesus continued by saying that for him to deny knowing God would make him as much a liar as they were for saying that he was their God. And again, that's a strong dialogue, and it demands that we understand the meaning of the Lord's words here. These Jews would have been understood as experts in the Jewish religion. They had the book of God in their hands. They had the Old Testament scriptures. These were the seminary students with with certificates of understanding and education in the Old Testament scriptures. There they stood conversing with Jesus in the temple, the temple of God, at the end of the Old Testament feast of tabernacles that God had ordained for his people. Jesus was being challenged by the men considered to be the professionals of his day in the religion of God. And Jesus says to them, you don't know God, and you are a liar for saying that you do. What Jesus exposes in these religious rulers is that they may know about God, but they do not know God. And while our English translations do not show this, in verse 55, Jesus uses two different words for know. It is a different word when he says, you have not come to know. And then he changes the language a bit. And he says, but I know him. And if I said I don't know him, I would be a liar like you for saying you do know him. There are two different words for knowing there. And our English translation only gives us one. I turn to William Hendrickson the renowned scholar, this is his interpretation of verse 55. I'm just going to read it to you. I did not put it on your notes because I think you're going to understand what he has to say. Hendrickson writes, you have not, putting the words of Jesus here, you have not learned to recognize him, God, have not become acquainted with him, God, though he revealed himself to you, but I do know him intuitively, and directly, having been in his very presence from all of eternity. That's what Jesus is saying to these Jews. Jesus not only had that internal apprehension of God, but he lived in experience with God. To know God in this way is to understand his character, his truth, his faithfulness, his goodness, his perfections. It is a knowledge that has experienced God's character through this close fellowship that Father and Son enjoyed. This describes a deep relational knowledge of God that religious men think they may have, but they cannot know apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It's the difference between knowing of God or knowing about God and actually having a relationship with God that experiences God's gracious favor and where one walks in union with God. And that's where Jesus takes this conversation, the end of verse 55. 
I do know him. And what? I keep his word. Jesus had walked in the goodness of God's truth. He had fulfilled the purposes of God. He was the perfect and total fulfillment of the law of God. And he lived to fulfill the will of his Father because he sought the glory of God. Jesus walked perfectly in the ways of God, consistent with the character and the attributes of God. The Jews, on the other hand, they held to the laws of Moses, thinking that their own works would save them. They had a strict moral code to observe that that what made them appear very godly in the eyes of other men was disdained by God himself because they thought they could merit the favor of God apart from loving and honoring his son. In rejecting the truth of Christ, they rejected the truth of God and therefore were not keepers of God's word as was his son. It is again clear from this that religion can give the impression of being on very good terms with God. It can give a picture of devotion and piety toward God. But those who truly know God are those who keep his word. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this world to proclaim his word, to proclaim his truth. And therefore, to reject the truth of Christ is to reject the God who sent Christ. Those who truly know God will show the proof of that relationship by keeping his words as proclaimed by his son. This is what Jesus declares to these very devout religious Jewish men. I know him and I keep his word. And this brings us to the third and the pinnacle declaration of Christ that he is the son that is always, always, been with the father verse 56 your father abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad without question the most troubling of the words of christ here to these jews in john chapter 8 is going to culminate in verse 58 but it's in these words that jesus has that concludes this particular debate that he states his timeless relationship with god the father Jesus is glorified by his Father. He knows and keeps his Father's words, but he has also always been with God the Father. And in verse 56, Jesus continues by bringing Abraham back into the discussion, knowing where this would lead the conversation. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What is certain about this reference to Abraham is that this was a very happy occasion. Whatever it was, it was a very happy occasion for Abraham. He rejoiced and he was glad in it. Now this is said to be one of the very difficult passages to interpret from the standpoint of what day Jesus was referring to that Abraham saw. Some have suggested that Abraham saw Jesus the day when the Lord and two others appeared to him. By the Oaks of Mamre back in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham, remember, was certainly glad on that occasion because he looked up and he saw those three men and at once he brought water to minister to them, washed their feet, and then prepared a picnic meal for these men. 
And it was a happy occasion because it's on that day that the Lord saw Abraham and spoke to him and said, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son. It's going to be born to you. So certainly that was a happy occasion. Some speculate that the day of Jesus that Abraham saw is a reference to the vision that Abraham had back in Genesis 15 when God first promised him an heir. God took Abraham out into the night, remember, and had him look up at the stars in the heavens and the endless space. And he said, you're going to have that many kids, Abraham. Yeah, that's a pretty happy occasion. Other suggestions include the promise of God in Genesis 12, where God called Abraham out of his home country, and he promised him a land of blessing. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Perhaps it's Genesis 17, where the Lord again appeared to Abraham and established the covenant of promise that he would be the father of a multitude of nations where kings would be born from him. And while all of these appearances could be what Jesus was thinking as he spoke to the Pharisees here in John 8, it may be best to see them all combined in a sense. For in these passages, Abraham did see the vision of the Lord God. And he heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him. But when Abraham rejoiced to see the day of the Lord, this may well be the fulfillment of the promise God made to him that he would be a father of many nations. And God told Abraham that through his son Isaac would come the seed through whom the nations would be blessed by God. So if we look at John chapter 8, and we hear the Savior say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What might that day be? If not perhaps the day that Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah, the day when these older people, which were well beyond bearing children, actually bore a son, the fulfillment of God's promise, many nations coming from him, many descendants like the stars in the heaven, and out of this one son would come a seed by which all of the nations would be blessed. I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 21, and we'll look at this day, in Genesis 21, and we'll consider perhaps is this the day that Jesus referred to in John chapter 8 as he spoke with these unbelieving Jews. Genesis 21, look beginning at verse 5. Genesis 21, verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Not laugh at me, but will laugh with me. Do you see joy here? Is there rejoicing? Is there gladness? And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, who nursed children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that his son Isaac was weaned. This appears to me to be the great fulfillment of the promise because there God showed to Abraham he was faithful. God fulfilled a promise to Abraham. And the name Isaac means laughter. 
because this child brought great joy to Abraham and Sarah. Not only did they have a son and they didn't expect one any longer, but this son came bearing a promise from God that God would make Abraham a great nation, that he would bring blessing to all the nations through the descendant born through Isaac, his son. This is a son of laughter indeed, of great joy. In the book of Hebrews, Abraham is given a place of honor among God's faithful people because he believed the promise that God made to him. His faith in God is celebrated along with others like Abel, Enoch, Noah, and even Sarah. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, we read these words, all these died with, in faith, all of them died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and have confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's the testimony that Abraham left behind. He didn't see the full fulfillment, the final fulfillment of God's promises, but he saw them from a distance. His son was a miracle birth promised by God in his old age. And just as the Lord was faithful to keep his word in giving to Abraham a son, so Abraham believed that God would be faithful to fulfill his promise of Messiah, the seed by whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I have no doubt that Abraham didn't know all the details of Messiah, everything that would be accomplished on Calvary, the 33 years of ministry that that seed would live on the earth, that that seed would be the actual son of God. Abraham may not have known all of those details but he knew that God had made him a promise. And Abraham was a man that believed God. That's what made Abraham different than the Jews. The Jews had claimed Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if Abraham was your father, you would do the deeds of Abraham. Abraham believed God. And here I come speaking the words of truth from God and you don't believe. Abraham did not do this. The implications of Abraham seeing Jesus was that that Old Testament reference to the Lord God appearing to Abraham, making promises to Abraham, and fulfilling those promises to Abraham, that God was Jesus. That's the implication here in John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they respond by reminding Jesus, you're not even 50 years old yet. Now, to the Levite, 50 years old was critical because that was the end of the, their ministerial calling. That's when they hit the age where they fulfilled all of their calling in the Levit Levit Levitical sense. So that was kind of the retirement age. And Jesus was not even close to finishing his life work at somewhere close to 30 years old. So what Jesus said made no sense to them. Verse 58, Jesus makes clear, what he's been saying to them, and he does so with another profound and significant declaration. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Notice it doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was also. He says before Abraham was born, I am. And that declaration describes a state of being that has always been. 
This is one of the more profound expression of Christ's deity and eternal nature found anywhere in John's gospel. And it stands right alongside with John chapter 1, the first three verses. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. He was there with God. Nothing was created that didn't come by His doing. This is one of those profound expressions of Christ's deity. We've made a point of observing the seven great I am's in John's gospel. We've hit two of them so far. And with each of those seven I am's, there is a picture reference given to us. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the vine. But here Jesus merely says, I am. And you wonder why this other expression, this other I am expression isn't put with the other seven because then there would be eight, I guess. But in the context of what the Jews had just asked of Jesus, we might word the conversation a bit differently to understand the meaning of the Lord. We might see it in this way. Abraham lived thousands of years before you, Jesus. And you're what? 32, 33 years old? Jesus responds by saying, I'm not 30, I'm not 50, I'm not even 2,000 years old. Going back to Abraham's time, I am eternal. I have no beginning nor end of days. Jesus Christ is the ageless one and eternally present with God the Father. That's the thing that's hard for my brain to wrap around. Here is the one with no beginning and no end. He always has been. I may not understand it, but I believe it. Most striking about this declaration of the Jews was that Jesus used the title of identity that God gave to Moses while speaking to him from the midst of the burning bush. We've looked at that Old Testament passage and the other two I am declarations, but God told Moses of his divine commission Moses is commissioned to lead the people of Israel out from Egyptian slavery. Go talk to Pharaoh. I want you to go talk on my behalf to the people of Israel. And Moses said, how am I supposed to do that, God? I'm a nobody. I don't have any credentials. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And you are to tell the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. That's a credential you need. I am has sent you. What Jesus was telling these Jews is that he is that God. He's the one that spoke to Moses. He's the one who promised blessing to the nations through Isaac. He is the God that existed eternally before Abraham was ever born. And the Jews don't miss the meaning at this point, do they? They get what he's saying now. Because verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, I don't know if this is one of those miracle disappearances because it's pretty hard to hide in the temple. If these Jews wanted to get to him strictly on human terms, they could have. So it almost appears that miraculously the father veiled his son because his time had not yet come. I don't know that for sure. It just says that he hid himself. But consider there are two responses here, and both are troubling. Number one, Jesus had just declared, this is who I am, and I've always been. And man picks up rocks to extinguish that one. That's a full rejection of the Savior, 
a full rejection of the son that God had sent. There's another response here that's equally troubling because Jesus turns and walks away. He could have stopped them from throwing stones. He could have said, wait a minute, I have more to say and prevented them from doing him harm. But instead, the Savior turns away from them. Now, there will be more conversations to come, to be sure. But when you read those words at the end of verse 59, it reminds me of Romans chapter 1, where there comes a place where God will turn men over. Three times, Paul writes, God turned them over. God turned them over. God turned them over. And it is a reminder to us that there is a time in God's plan where he says enough and there's no more opportunity for men to turn to the Savior. This isn't that time yet, apparently, because Jesus is not done in Jerusalem. But it does let us know there comes a point when the conversation is done and Jesus is done talking. He said all that he needs to say and he's declared, I am that I am. Now, as we bring John 8 to a close, we can look back and we can see several important themes. And I've jotted down just a few of the many that we have seen in John 8 on your note sheet. These include who Jesus is and the life that he gives. We've seen true faith, what it is and what it is not, predominantly what it is not. We've we've seen more about unbelief in this chapter We've seen the opposing spiritual realms, that which is from above, that which is from below, the fatherly influence of God and of Satan himself. We see the unity of the Father and Son. Again, we've seen it this morning. The graciousness of the gospel invitation in the midst of hostility towards the Savior. We've seen the rejection of God's Son, the inadequacy of man's religion. We've seen the sufficiency of Christ to save and the truth that Christ was sent to proclaim by God the Father. Those are just some of the major themes that have come to the surface from our study in this debate. And it's from these, and particularly from the final words in this chapter, that I want us to draw some needed applications, some needed, they're necessary, they're essential for our walk of faith with Christ. And I believe that they flow right out of the text that we've just looked at this morning. And it begins with a believer's need for a passion for the glory of Christ. We need, as a church, we need as individual believers, a passion for the glory of Christ. Return with me to what Tim opened our service with in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see the words again that Paul writes to the church. Particularly verse 16 and 17 of 2 Corinthians 4. Paul writes, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is an important truth for us to take hold of. And it is evident in John 8. We just saw it in John 8. This can be understood, I believe, as the glory of the incarnation. Consider with me what the life and the ministry of Jesus would have looked like. He willingly set aside his heavenly glories, his prerogatives, and he took on our likeness, he took on humanity, and he entered into the role of a slave, a bondservant. 
to make payment for our sins and die on a cross. And when the Son of God became the Son of Man, though worthy of all glory, He endured pain and struggle with life as He was born among us. He knew hunger. He knew fatigue. Do you suppose Jesus ever caught the flu or the common cold? Do you think He ever ate something that unsettled His tummy and He had to run to the outhouse like we often struggle with? I don't know if he did all of those things, but the book of Hebrews tells us he endured everything as we endured, yet he do, did so without sin. But Jesus also experienced hostility, hatred, slander, constant debate, and accusations. He endured dishonor and shame, a soiled reputation, because he was fully undeserving of this dishonor. He endured it. And even Jesus' miracles, they were attributed to demonic possession. Nothing Jesus did, nothing he said, would be honored by these men. It's almost like having a political leader who is constantly attacked, blamed for every bad circumstance, and can do nothing right. Have we ever seen that in our day and age? But Jesus was no political ruler, but he also never failed. He never sinned, and yet he could do nothing right in the eyes of these religious men. He should have received glory. Instead, he was treated with shame. And what was his response? His response to all of this, my father will glorify me. You won't. This world won't. But my father glorified me. And that was enough for him. Because as the Apostle Paul says, that glory is far beyond all comparison. Didn't matter the suffering. Didn't matter the persecution. What Paul calls the momentary light affliction. Because what's on the other end of this is the glory that God will give. And that was enough for Jesus. And I think this is important for us to learn as his disciples Jesus has warned us that because of him, we're also going to be dishonored because we bear his name. In addition, we must endure living in a fallen and broken world. And it can be our inclination to seek glory from this life. We not only want the praises of men, but we want the better glories that this world has to offer. And we don't always get those things. And when we don't get those things, but we get some measure of misery instead, we will say, why? God, I've been walking with you. Why this health problem? Why this family situation? Why are my children doing this? Why is my marriage like, why are my finances crumbling? As if we deserve better glories in this life. Christians can expect to experience the scorn of this world. Our jobs can trouble us. Our health may fail us. Our children may have physical or spiritual heartaches that we're going to have to bear. Our marriages may bring us grief, and we'll most certainly have to face trials that are associated with our own failings. Much of our troubles in this life may well be our own doing, but it's easy for us to wonder why there is little glory here in this life and so much for us that we have to endure. Paul reminds us in that 16th verse that we're not to lose heart. Why does he say that? He says that, because we're prone to be discouraged. 
And when we do, we lose sight of the glory of Christ. We live in a world of afflictions. Our temporal existence, Paul says, is decaying day by day. It's not getting better, and it's not going to. But whatever suffering or lack of glory that we may endure here in this life cannot even compare with the eternal weight of glory that is to come. Paul said it's far beyond comparing the two. You can't. Yet when trials come, what so often happens to us as believers? We pull away. We disappear into the shadows. We withdraw from fellowshipping with Christ and with His people. We fall away from serving Christ in His church. Despite the suffering that Christ endured, He was devoted to glorify His Father. He kept doing what He was called to do, knowing that His Father would glorify Him. And that was enough for Jesus. My Father will glorify me, no matter what you do with me. My Father will glorify me. I read a story recently of a brilliant professor who was confronted by a friend who recognized his gifts and his talents, and he said to this professor, why are you teaching? You could go out into society and earn a great deal more money, but you've taken a teacher's salary, and you have a moderate income. And the professor said this, I have enough. And he went on to say, I have not time to make money. Life is not sufficiently long to enable a man to get rich and do his duty to his fellow men at the same time. I believe this is a question for Christians today. Will we spend our time on the glories of this life or on the glory of Christ, which is beyond comparing to anything this world has to offer? And I believe that John chapter 8, Jesus teaches us this. This world will not honor us. It will not glorify us. Will we stay active in seeking the glory of Christ by faithfully serving Him, speaking of Him, living before the world, serving His church, ministering to His people, taking the gospel to the unsaved? Will we continue to seek the glory of Christ even when the world will give us nothing but trouble? If we're going to do that, we need a passion the glory of Christ and not the glories that this world will have to offer us. His glory is far beyond comparing anything we must endure in this life. Second, we also need a hunger to know more of Christ. A hunger to know more of Christ. As believers, we know God. We know Christ. But I believe what we need is a hunger to know more of Christ. I want you to turn back to John 17. The prayer of Jesus that he audibly spoke before his disciples because he wanted his disciples to hear this. Jesus prays to the Father. He says, glorify now your Son. And he can say that to God in verse 1 because he knows that God judges him righteously. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He's about to go on the cross. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Notice then verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm sure we've all wondered, why did God save me? And we think in individual terms. And of course, we're looking for a reason. Is there something in me that 
that God would say, I'm going to take that one and not that one over there? And I suspect the answer to this question is going to be the same to the question, why does God save all of his people? It's not just me. Why does God save all of his church? According to this passage, you and I are given eternal life. For what reason? To know God. We have been spared eternal death and been given eternal life so that we may know God and that we may know his son. And if the objective of God in granting us life is that we may know him and his son, then our greatest objective in life should be what? To know him, to learn of him, to grow in our understanding of him. Religion may boast of knowing God, but God will not be known apart from knowing his son. A book that I'm now reading has one of the sections titled this way, Meeting the Talking God. Meeting the Talking God. That's what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. God actually spoke to his people. And according to the book of Hebrews, in Old Testamental times, God spoke through the fathers and the Old Testament prophets. But today, how has he spoken to us? Through his Son. Is it any wonder that the Apostle John started his gospel narrative with those words, in the beginning was the Word? He didn't say, in the beginning was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But that's who he was talking about. He said, in the beginning was the word. Why? Because God sent his son to speak on behalf of the father. And Jesus continues to speak to us through his written word, does he not? We have been saved to know God and to know his son. And therefore, what you and I need as believers is a hunger to know him, a hunger to know Christ, a hunger to be in his word and to learn from Jesus who God is and who his son is. We need this. And third, I believe that we need a perspective of the eternal from Christ. We need a perspective or a view of the eternal from Christ. And I'm going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to look at that final verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now this may be hard for us to realize at times, since there are so many pressures and troubles for us to manage in our temporal world. But what we need continually in our walk of faith is to keep a perspective of the eternal before us. This is a perspective that is from Christ because we now belong to the I Am of Scriptures. And while he became one of us and he lived among us for some 33 years, he is also the one that has no beginning of days nor end of days, and we are eternally in him. And this is why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth those words, we don't look at the things that we see visibly in front of us, 
the temporal things. And the looking that Paul describes in this passage is not telling us to ignore the things of this life. We have to maintain certain things in this temporal world just to survive physically. Rather, what he is telling the church is that we are to fix our gaze on the eternal things, not the temporal things. That's what we're to hold on to. Not the passing things, but the things that last for eternity. As Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Christians need to have an eternal perspective because our Savior is eternal and we're in him. And by faith in him, we now are eternal as well. We won't experience that spiritual death. We are in eternal life. We need a view of eternity. We're too focused on the here and now. I spoke of knowledge a moment ago. We need to know more of Christ. Think about the things that we love, our interests, our hobbies. We will invest time in those hobbies because we want to know more about them. Is our love and passion for Jesus the same? I think about football season coming up. How is that going to look this fall? We know all the players, all the teams, who the best quarterbacks are. Come September, we're going to put on our number 12 jersey. We're going to grab a bag of Doritos. We're going to sit in a recliner chair, turn on the TV, and we're going to see golf. Because there won't be football. And are we going to survive? Friends, we need an internal perspective. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on his church, the calling that he's given to us. The temporal things are going to pass away. And I need 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18 as much as anybody here today. I need to keep my eyes fixed on the eternal. We need this. It is essential. Father in heaven, we praise you for your son. We praise you for your eternality, your glories, your graciousness, your attributes, your kindness, the work of your Savior. And that we now by faith have been made part of that eternity, part of that glory. We are now in your Son. Our faith is precious and we give you thanks for it. As we leave this place this morning, would you, Father, give us a passion for your glory. Give us a hunger for the knowledge of you. And Father, give us a view, a perspective of the eternal and help us, Father, at all times to live in that view, to live in the eternal. For your honor and for your glory in Christ we pray. Amen.